Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, are you guys ready to tackle one last time the uh, issue of marriage here this morning? Uh, you know, one of the things that um, I always uh, am, am unappreciative of is when I'm traveling and I get that wake-up call in the morning. You know, when you ask the operator to call you so that uh, you can take on the events of the day and the phone rings and uh, you stumble out of bed and begin a new day. Well, I want you to know that when it comes to marriage, at some point, every couple will experience a wake-up call when it comes to love and marriage. And they're going to find it's far more different with far more avenues of adventure than they ever imagined. For one young couple, it occurred this way as he and his wife had the occasion to do something that they had longed to do, and that was to take a vacation in Europe. And one day in Italy, they were on a particularly tight schedule. The young man had had really prepared a rather um, vigorous itinerary for both of that couple. They were going to race from site to site. It's one of those kind of days, if you take vacations oftentimes, that a man really loves. It's that challenge in the schedule that ignites the fires of primitive manhood. You know, there's going to be something to conquer today. Well, unfortunately, as you might imagine, the young woman had a whole different expectation in mind. One side in particular, she had uh, a heavy expectation because it was filled with all kinds of shops and unique historical uh, sites. And she was expecting when they got there for them to visit, visit with a capital V and linger with a capital L. And as you might imagine, savoring and conquering are not good traveling companions. And so as the day unfolded and as they raced from site to site and he pulled her out of shops and historical monuments, the tension began to grow between them. But they did get through every site just as he had hoped. And so at the end of the day, he was quite pleased with himself. They had done it. Mission accomplished. The day is over, he thought. You know, just as uh, big rocks on a hillside soak up sunlight during the day and then radiate the heat back at starlight, so too do the events of the day tend to color a woman and what transpires after sundown. <laughs> and this young man felt that. Here it is, it's the evening, they step out on their balcony. It's a very romantic balcony overlooking the Mediterranean Sea and as you might imagine, he's in a very romantic mood. He's accomplished his mission. Now there are things to move on to. And so he moves over to her and slips both his arms around her and hugs her real tight. And he says to her, Honey, I really, really love you. And she pulls back from him. And she has some of the events of the day still on her face. And she says, Oh, really? Well, I want you to know it's going to take work to love me. And about that time you hear the phone go, ring, this is your wake-up call. You know, at times, for each of us who are married, you discover that life and love require work. It's going to take work 
to love a person, and it's going to take a special kind of work to love a person over a lifetime. Now I want you to know, for those of us who are romantics and idealists, a statement that you must work at love seems to destroy the myth and the mystery of love. How can you say that? Doesn't it just happen? And we're always constantly bombarded by images of passion that just happen and that pull the couple through the rest of their lives. But real love doesn't just happen. Even though the idealist may see a statement like that as reducing love to something mechanical and dry and either, even loathsome. But for those of us who are enlightened by the years and by experience, love is more than a feeling to be felt. Love becomes a skill to be learned. And as one works at these sometimes rigorous curricula that love requires, that work, believe it or not, does not kill the spontaneity of, spontaneity of passion or romance. In fact, quite the contrary, that kind of effort, and I mean effort with a capital E, it spikes passion when you've been living 10, 15, 25 years with a person. It spikes romance to new heights. It creates new expressions of wonder about what love is that those who are just simply given to the philosophy that love is a feeling never find, never experience. And most often they shortcut themselves because love gets reduced to something extremely superficial when it was supposed to be something that's an adventure for a lifetime. And with effort, it's supposed to drill deep wells of satisfaction. But listen, only when one understands that love is not just a feeling, but a skill, will one discover that. Now this morning, I want to share with you some, some of what I've discovered after being married for 23 years. And I'm going to do so in the same vein as Bill and Bill have the last couple of weeks as they have talked about marriage, not so much from the Scripture, but the Scriptures as they flow through their lives. And I intend to do the same today. And I have illustrated the things that I have learned. These are my understandings. And I hope I can do so with integrity and authenticity because I've asked my wife and my kids permission to share these things because I want you to know they're real in our home. I call them marriage builders. And I've used different figures to help you grasp onto those. So let's look at the first one. I call it the hammer of truth. The hammer of truth. Now I want you to know if ever there was a person who was ill-prepared to be married, you're looking at him. Exhibit A on why marriages often fail. Though my parents were very committed to the three boys that they raised, they also had a tremendous difficulty in loving one another. Maybe you've heard of rollover contracts. Now, rollover contracts, oftentimes you see coaches sign or certain CEOs sign to provide a sense of security and affirmation. They'll sign a five or ten year rollover contract, which basically means after they finished one of the years on the contract, the contract just simply rolls over and they have five more years of the contract or ten more years of the contract. And that's provided for these stellar figures so, first of all, they can feel a sense of commitment from the company or the team where they can sense a deep sense of affirmation where they can get the sense that they are financially secured even if they would be terminated, that they have well-being planned for them in the future. Well, I mentioned that in that in our house, we didn't have rollover contracts. 
we had what I call rollover conflicts. A rollover conflict was in that no matter how much time and energy and effort my mom and dad expended as they yelled at one another, as they followed one another around the house and out the door, as they blamed one another for their financial failures or for parenting failures or for issues that were taking place in our home, no matter how long they talked about it, no matter how much effort they gave to it, no matter how strong they were in trying to pin the other person down to prove that they were right, the end result was that when they were finished, all that conflict just simply rolled over and they were right back to where they started when they were finished. Rollover conflicts provide a family with other kinds of feelings that rollover contracts don't. Rollover conflicts provide, especially for three young boys, a deep sense of insecurity. A constant reminder of alienation, of how things don't work, and for them in their own little ways, a sense of heaviness that they have to carry in somehow trying to manage mom and dad who are out of control, which they were never created to do. That's what I grew up in. That's the home I lived in, and I'm not sure how much I learned about marriage in 18 years there, but I can tell you I learned a lot about being a referee. I was grafted in many times to be the mom and the dad, and so were my brothers. My dad rarely participated in family life. My dad, as I have said, was a shadow. Got this great picture on my dresser of the three boys the last time we were together and my dad. And my mom took that picture and I thought how appropriate that the three sons are standing there, one behind the other, but for whatever reason in the time of the day, there was a shadow that cast over my dad and he's just like a silhouette in the background. And that's the role he played in our home. Always gone either working or drinking, but rarely involved in the life of his children. And I wonder, though I know there are many out here that would feel this, you know what it feels like to have a father and be fatherless at the same time? It's an unusual feeling. It's a feeling that you don't even know how to interpret or come to grips with. It was our mother who had to lead the family, but it was obvious she didn't like it. And from time to time, she would punish my dad for these role reversals, which he hated, and then he would strike out to try to do something about it, which she fought him off in trying to do that because he was so unreliable and she couldn't trust him. And so the vicious cycle would start all over again. And for these three young boys, looking for some handles on what it meant to be married, much less what it meant to get along with the opposite sex. I want you to know it was pretty awful modeling. When I left for the University of Arkansas in 1967, I'd been trained to fail. That was my training. And I want you to know I would have failed. I would have. Except for the events that occurred in the spring of 1968 in which I was introduced to Jesus Christ. And in being introduced to Jesus Christ, I was also introduced to the Bible. Now, I'd never read the Bible, but as I read it, I found some marvelous things. And one of the things that, were, that particularly attracted me were those statements about marriage and 
and relationships with women and how to conduct yourself. And I had good teachers that surrounded me in those years in college. And I found in the Scriptures a compelling purpose for marriage. I didn't even know what the purpose for marriage was. And the goals of marriage. And I had a divine declaration given to me about what should be the goals of your marriage from God's perspective. And what my role ought to be in marriage. What my responsibilities should be in marriage. And they were much different than what I was raised in. And I found wisdom for living with a person that I, I could recognize clearly. I have failed in that way. And yet there it was, stated explicitly for me. It was all there. And this 19-year-old hungry heart ate it up. Ate up every bit of it. But what was most exciting to me and attractive to me were some promises in the Bible. You see, I was looking for a rollover contract. And as I looked into the Bible, I saw some incredible statements of stability and well-being and security if I would but just draw near and believe. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3.17, the Word of God says it would make me, and I'm quoting it now, adequate. Adequate. Golly, the thing I felt most as a freshman in college was inadequacy and I had nobody to tell. I was afraid to tell him, but I was supposed to be the big football player on campus. Yet there it said, you can be adequate and equipped for every good work. That was attractive. Or how about in Luke 6, 47 and 48, where Jesus says, if I would just but hear His words and then act on them, that I would be like a man building a house on a rock. And even if a flood burst against that house, it could not shake it because that house had been well built. Well, I knew some of those metaphors of house and flood, but the rock, that's what I wanted. Or in Ecclesiastes 12.11, which says in speaking of the Scripture, these words are like well-driven nails. That all spoke of security and stability. And I wanted it. And so 23 years ago, by faith, with a conscious act of my will, I rejected the tumultuous training of my childhood. I rejected it. And all the training that went with it. And by faith, I struck out in a path that was purely by faith, and that was to build a house, to build a marriage with this hammer of truth. Now what I didn't realize at the start of my adventure is I intended to build the house hammering with this hammer of truth, but you know what? Oftentimes the hammer turns on you. And it starts pounding me in the ground. And it's done that on a number of occasions. But I want you to know, after 23 years, as my children told me in our bedroom the other night, and my wife as well, we have built a home. It works. And now 23 years later, when I open the Psalms and I read Psalm 127, the statement, unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. I want you to know, I could never ever tell you all today how deeply I understand the reality of that statement because I've lived in two houses. I've experienced two worlds with God building it and without God building it. And I owe my marriage to Jesus Christ and His hammer of truth this morning. That's what I've learned after 23 years. I've learned a second thing. A second marriage builder for me 
are the glues of trust and togetherness. Now I'm going to take each one of those in turn. First, trust. Trust. Men, I have learned, sometimes the hard way, that my trustworthiness in my home and especially with my wife is key to her responsiveness to me, which every man desperately wants. He wants a responsive wife to him. Years ago in seminary, I found myself as a young seminary student in a counseling session, and as these weeks unfolded, I felt myself being sexually tempted by the young lady that I was counseling. And feeling ashamed and not really sure what to do about it, I guess I turned back and shared that with Sherrod, fully expecting her to feel repulsed by what was going on or offended or angry and indignant. But you know what was interesting? When I told her what I was beginning to feel, her reaction surprised me. It was just the opposite. Instead of feeling angry, she moved towards me with a great amount of tenderness and understanding. And I didn't know what to make of that until years later I began to understand that my confession about this temptation was not a failure to her. It communicated trust to her. That I would go to her and not hide my struggles, but invite her into my struggles was a tremendous statement that I can trust this guy. Trust is a sacred item in marriage. I want you to know it. A very sacred item in marriage. And when it's lost, it brings all kinds of heartache. So guard it closely. Because when you have it, everything, even failure, is given the benefit of the doubt. That's good. That's what my wife gave me. But when you finally lose trust with a woman, even the good things that you do, they become colored with suspicion and interrogation. And the life of the marriage flows out of the doors. Without trust, a woman's responsiveness to a man goes to zero. You know, I've learned my wife's willingness to trust me as the head of our home, as the Bible declares me to be, is not because that title puts me in authority. Now, when I was younger, I thought it did. But over the years, I have learned that her trust and her responsiveness to me is based on whether she can trust that I am under authority. There's a big difference between being in authority with capital letters and being under authority. Christ authority. My leadership grows as my wife begins to understand that it is in direct proportion to my own submission. That I'm not asking anything of her that I am not also displaying to her. When it's obvious I'm wrong and I admit it, I'm declaring that I am under authority. And she can feel that. It can't be talked about. These moments of my being under submission can only be experienced by a mom and a wife and brothers and sisters. The family can only be experienced. You can never say, hey, I'm under authority. You only show this. You only show it when you do what's right, even though it's uncomfortable for you. It's when I sit down and just listen to others' points of view, I declare I'm under authority. When I open up about my failures, when I, when I know why I'm saying what I'm saying, and I give evidence to saying what I'm saying, I don't just give directions, but I go on 
and talk about why those are important. It's when I'm convinced and when my wife is convinced that I am under authority, not just in authority. Without that, without that, a man's leadership is a very fearful thing for a woman. And part of the whole feminist movement at the heart, at the very heart, if you could go to the soul of that, is a massive distrust of men and what they would do given control. It closes down a woman's heart. And that's a tragic thing. Well, that's trust. The second glue I call togetherness. Togetherness means that you are willing to make time for your mate on their terms. Willard Harley found in his research that led to his best-selling book, His Needs, Her Needs, that of the major needs of a man and the major needs of a woman, that there was only one item that was common on both lists, and that was the need for companionship. Now, they have a little different accent, but it's still, nonetheless, companionship. Companionship for a woman, he found, meant a conversational companion. A conversation, or, or a woman's conversation, is the need for it, at least, is why Irma Bombeck issued her Bombeck's Law. It's probably a good day to issue this law, which says, in effect, any man who watches 6,000 hours of football games should be declared by the state legally dead. <laughs> there's activity going on in the house, but there's no companionship, and companionship for a woman means talk. Talk to me. I don't need John Wayne here tonight. I need you. Togetherness means for a husband looking at his wife that he is willing to make time for his wife on her terms, which means talk. Now, when you turn the flip side of that, companionship for a man, Harley says, means a recreational companion. She doesn't roll her eyes when he goes out duck hunting. She puts on her long johns and goes out and shoots ducks with him in 12-degree weather. She travels, come on ladies, we're going to talk. <laughs> she travels 300 miles to a Razorback football game. She goes to the gun and knife show. Huh? Some of you guys are giving high fives out there, and I need you to stop doing that. <laughs> She joins him in certain aspects of his work. She knows what's going on. She supports him when he's coaching the Little League baseball team. She might even be co-coach. For a man, that's a real woman. It is. That's speaking on his terms. And he needs that. Recently, I was talking to a, an older gentleman who was moving to a stage in his life where he was cutting back on his work. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm going through a number of changes. I'm trying to kind of get a feeling for this new season of life that I'm in. And looking for some new recreations. And then he, his face lit up and he said, hey, I went out and I bought a Harley. Can you believe that? And it kind of shocked me. I said, really? And he went on to tell me about this Harley. And, and of course, there was an obvious question in all of this that I was just waiting to ask him after he told me of his enthusiasm about this motorcycle. I said, well, what does your wife think? And he kind of grinned and he said, she went out and bought one too. <laughs> and I thought, what a smart woman. Here's her man going through this great transition from work to retirement, and she's going to motor right next to him. She's doing a good job. By the way, in Harley's research, spending recreational time 
with his wife was second only to sex with what a man really enjoys. Isn't that something? He really wants you. Well, there's another kind of togetherness before I leave this topic that I want to mention to you. It's one that I am more and more concerned about for couples. It is one that I have already done. In fact, years ago, my wife and I sat down and resolved this years ago, and it has had a powerful impact on our marriage. It's given us energy in the day-to-day rather than take it away. It's what I call the togetherness of values. You might just jot that down. The togetherness of values. Are you sick of hearing about family values? You hear all kinds of things about family values today, mainly because society is drowning in tasteless generalities. We're killing ourselves because we refuse, with all the evidence, to adopt moral absolutes. It's killing us. But I want you to know, we use society to blame, but that comes into every home in America. And I see it all the time. That disease is not in society. That's a way of getting it away from you and being unaccountable. It's in your home. It's in your family. And many marriages suffer from this disease. There's no clear sense of right and wrong. Uh, Husband and wife have never sat down and come to a clear agreement with conviction. I want to underline the word conviction on where they stand on a whole plethora of items much less say why we believe that and be able to document with support why we believe that so we can teach our kids to do the same. They've never sat down and say, what do we believe on marriage? What is marriage? What are we going to tell our kids marriage is? What's its purpose? What about divorce? We see it all around us. What does this family believe about divorce? What do you believe? What do we believe about debt? What do we believe about alcohol? What do we believe about pornography or premarital sex or all kinds of career pursuits that are going to impact our kids when we go running out to pursue them? What kind of agreement do we have there about marriage roles and responsibilities, about spiritual beliefs, about movie and television standards, and on and on it goes. What do we believe together? You see, when we believe it together, it gives our marriage energy. When we never discuss it, when our values are changing day to day, when one day we're kind of shaking our fists at that and the next day giving into it, our kids get so confused in that moral duplicity and then they grow up in that home not really sure of anything and then they go out and take revenge on society because of it. And I'm saying that there comes a place where a marriage has to stop and take account of what it believes. Otherwise, it is going to be undermined and hurt, and it's going to launch wounded kids into the next generation. It was the prophet Amos who said, can two walk together except they be agreed? And there's an implied answer in the Hebrew. You don't have to guess at it. It shouts back, no, no. And yet today, many families cannot define their values clearly, what they believe or their convictions. Now I want you to know, If you're like that, if I've kind of raised some questions in your mind about your own home, I have a project that I've created for you. It's not in your bulletin. It's back in the alcove. You can pick it up after the service. If you're interested, it's called the Togetherness of Values. But what my aim is in preaching this this morning is I would love to go into every home in this church a year, two years from now, and find on a wall in your home what our forefathers understood when they created coats of arms and things like that. 
but find a family coat of arms hanging on your walls. Maybe it would be entitled, Our Family Values. And then below it, what you would find is specific, clear, articulate declarations, specifically stating with biblical support why you believe it, what this family really does believe and what is going to be expected from every family member from dad on down. There it hangs, our moral constitution. And how much do we need a moral constitution in every home when today we're all bobbing along in a sea of relativism that is undermining everything we believe today in America and it's killing us. But what if the Christian home said, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it, and we're going to hold each other accountable to it. And when our kids leave our homes and get married and have their first son, we carry that coat of arms as a wedding gift or a childbearing gift and say, this is what we tried to do for you. Now if you want a project like that that gets you started, there's one for you available for you after the service. I call it the togetherness of values. A third marriage builder for me is what I call windows of transparency. You know, I love buildings that have a lot of window space because it makes them feel so fresh and clean. Just the opposite of what this building does, by the way. But you can go up into the special event center and all around the event center are these rooms that have all glass walls. And people come into our church all the time and just go down and have a quiet time or something in that building because just to sit out, it just opens up the world to you. I love buildings like that. It makes them nice. But you know, good marriages have a lot of open windows. They do. Transparency means that you've opened up the window of your fears or your pain or inviting a mate into your performance to tell you how you're really doing, not what you've been trying to convince him or her for months of the legitimacy of what you've been doing. You want to really hear it from their perspective. Inviting them in, opening the drapes, pulling up the window and talking about my real desires or my dreams or my temptations or for some, in, in moments of need, my past. Something i got to tell you. That's transparency. There's a person that wants to be known by some other person who's safe. And marriage was intended to do that. Two poems come to mind. Paul Simons in the 60's when he said, A winter's day, in deep and dark December, I am alone. I am a rock. I am an island. I've built my walls, a fortress deep and mighty, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter. It's loving. I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. You know, it's a tragic thing when you live with a rock. It is. It's a tragic thing. On the other hand, contrast this with Dinah Craig's poem that was written over a century ago. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with another person. Having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as they are, certain that a faithful hand will take them and sift them and keep what is worth keeping 
and with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. You see, God intended for us to have that kind of one flesh relationship with our mate. There's not a man or a woman in this room that doesn't wish that they could be known in that kind of safety that God originally called marriage. Where you can reveal your nakedness, the tender you that needs acceptance, love, and understanding. And men, I might add, we in particular struggle looking inside and then sharing what we see there with our wives. That's difficult for us. But remember, the Scripture, which is our constitution, calls us to be one flesh. And that's not just the fusion of bodies. That is a much greater metaphor of the fusion of hearts and feelings and intellect. And when we take that away from our women, we rob them of what marriage was intended. Now I might, before I move on, I might just say, be careful who you get transparent with. You want to be safe. As I mentioned, I asked my kids about our marriage and when I was talking to them about our marriage, I said, well, what do you think of mom and dad and how, how well do you think we're doing and those kind of things. And, and one of our daughters said, well, dad, I, I think you and mom, you balance each other out. And I, I wanted to invite a little more discussion. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she, he, she said, well, uh, mom's extreme kindness uh, balances out. Um, <laughs> I said, come on. She said, well, you're extremes. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a fourth marriage builder. I call it my saw of trials. You know, I was reared, as I mentioned, in the school of rollover conflicts. But I want you to know, for 23 years, I've been reclaimed by the truth of Ephesians 4, which says, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. In other words, keep your conflict account clean. Don't let things build up. Don't let then be paid off with just a little bit this day and then a little bit the next day and maybe next month and next year and they just go on and on and on. Keep them clean. It reminds me of the ad in the New York Times where the guy took out the ad and he said to my lovely wife, M, I want to thank you for 40 years of marriage except for the time back in 1935 in which you were obviously wrong. <laughs> See, that's something that's still going on and on and on. And yet the truth of Ephesians 4.26, it says, get angry. Go ahead. Good marriages have a lot of anger in them from time to time. Talk about it. Talk through it. Fight. But fight with a timer. And when it's over, put it behind you and build on what you've learned and go on. You know, my wife Sherrod taught me she was committed to the truth of Ephesians 4 of not letting things sit. Years ago, when we lived in Tucson, there was a moment in our marriage where we had a fight and we lived in a little home on the Pantano Wash and uh, I got mad at her, she got mad at me, we had a face-off and I said, well, I'm going to go jog in the Pantano Wash and she said, don't you think we need to finish this thing? I said, no. And I went out the door and into the wash and ran around for 30 minutes and walked around for a few minutes and then came back to the house. She was standing at the door waiting for me. She said, are you ready to finish it up now? I said, no. I went right on by her, went into the bathroom to take a shower. 
And I got in there. Our little bathroom had a little vanity area, and then you went into the shower area through a door. And I went in there and began to change my clothes, and I looked up, and there was a little sticker, a little happy face. And it said under it, let's talk. Had a little smiley face there. And I uh, went, nah. <laughs> went into the shower area, and there was, pulled a towel off, and underneath the towel, there was another happy face. <laughs> and it had a big smile there, and it said, please. And you know, you start feeling that pull of responsibility to get this thing over with, but I still bowed my neck, got in the shower, turned on the shower, and looked up on the nozzle, and there was another happy face. <laughs> Except this happy face was turned down with a frown. And behind it, there was a little sun going down, and the note said, you'll be sorry. <laughs> and you know what? I would have been. But it takes that kind of commitment to end relationships that are going downhill and pull them up so they can go uphill. And I've learned over the years how to fight. In fact, I've kind of become creative myself. It wasn't long ago when Sharon and I were getting heated up in the kitchen. It wasn't the food cooking. It was us. And my kids started peering into the kitchen. And so having a creative wife, I thought, well, I'm going to be creative here too. So I walked in there and my veins are sticking out. And I said, kids, sit down on the sofa. And they sat down, you know, all like that. I said, your mom and I are going to have a fight. And it's going to be a big fight. But I want you to know three things. One, I'm committed to your mother. Two, I love her. Three, we're not getting a divorce. So we're going to go get in the car, and we're going to fight. And we'll be back and tell you how to turn it out. And they're all sitting there going. <laughs> so off we go, and we have it out. And then it kind of confused them. We come back arm in arm, smiling, those kind of things. And we sit down, and they're all still waiting for us, sitting on the sofa. But my commitment is get it over with. I lived in the other. I lived in the other. And it didn't go on months. It didn't go on years. It went on decades. And let me tell you, you know what the bottom line was and all that? Nobody ever won. Nobody ever won. There was never, ever a winner. And I have counseled people for 25 years. And you know what I found? I have never, ever seeing a man beat a woman in this game where she just becomes whatever you say. And I've never seen a woman beat a man. So why are we playing that game? If you want to fight, fight. But the real fight will be the one to resolve it so that it doesn't come up again and again and again. Well, let me give you one final marriage builder for me. And you know, when we were building our home, I remember that great day when the carpenters came in, the finished carpenters, and started putting up the finishing touches. That's the best time of building, the trim and all that. And that's why I call this last one the trim of treasuring. The trim that's called treasuring. You might write this down. You can never honor your mate enough. You can never honor your mate enough. We assume so much in this modern world. We take for granted a man going to work or a woman going to work and how hard they work. It's just kind of, well, that's what they're supposed to do. No, no, no. That's not what previous generations did. They honored work. That's why we have Labor Day. And a lot of times we, I find people, you know, no matter how much a church does or their community group does, all they can think about is what it didn't do. 
rather than honoring the great things it has done, and so on in a marriage. The focus should not be on what's not there. It's honoring who that person is that you fell in love with and what they do and what they continue to do. And you can honor them, whether it be in these little notes that you strategically place around the house or whether it be unexpected flowers, whether it be compliments regarding their work and what they do, whether it be formal tributes or joining in with their interest, whether it's praising their character in some way. When you honor your mate, I want you to know you care enough to give the very best. It's not a card. It's you. You know when the greatest moment in Jesus Christ's public ministry was? It's when He came to start His ministry with His baptism and to commit Himself to really a life of death. And He got baptized and the heavens opened and His dad said, this is my son. And I'm well pleased with him. See, He got honored. Oh God, we thank You for the marvelous, marvelous blueprint that You have given us in Your Word. And that is there not to keep us from life. It is to give us life. And Lord, how I pray that these last three weeks that we have encouraged couples to take one more step towards You. Because as they do so, they find Your redemptive hand unleashing power into their marriage, into their lives, they find themselves becoming the very people that you wanted them to be. And the outflow of that is what the Scriptures call the abundant life. I am so proud of my wife and how I thank you that you created her for me, that you brought her to me so that I could enjoy the wealth of this relationship that has come not by strength, not by might, not by wisdom. It's come because of you. You've built our home. And I praise you this morning for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.